Welcome to Mission Daily. On today's episode, Ian sits down with Nitin Pachasia, founding partner at Unshackled Ventures, a pre-seed and seed stage fund that invests in and supports immigrant-founded startups in the United States. Unshackled is also a fund that has a mentorship program with a clever market-based solution to the visa challenge facing many foreign-born entrepreneurs. In exchange for equity, Unshackled not only provides cash, but also acts as an employer and visa sponsor for founders. Prior to Unshackled Ventures, Nitin ran finance and strategy for EdTech startup No, acquired by Intel in 2013, that raised over $90 million of funding from top VCs. Before No, Nitin immigrated from India to work at Deloitte, where he focused on helping tech startups with growth, exits, and strategic initiatives. On today's episode, Ian and Nitin discuss the unique challenges facing immigrant entrepreneurs today and how Unshackled Ventures is investing in the leaders of tomorrow, regardless of nationality. Welcome to Mission Daily. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org. And we have in studio, Nitin, what's up, man? Great, man. Thanks for having me. I am Super excited to have you. This first time on the show. I can't believe we've waited this long, hundreds of episodes later, to have you on. Well, I guess technically this is, I think, episode 128. We're going to get into your backgrounds, what you're working on at Unshackled Ventures. We've known each other for a couple of years, actually. That's right. You are one of the kindest and most brilliant people I've met since I've been here in Silicon Valley. And I just am really excited for our listeners to know more about your background. So let's start off with how did you get into the world of investing? That's uh, so very interesting. It was accidental entry into VC, um, as I call it. So I wasn't thinking about being a VC ever. Started a company as a founder on a visa, spent a lot of time dealing with it, uh, dealing with immigration, that means, and realized that while VCs have solved for a lot of challenges that entrepreneurs face, the immigration aspect of it was still left open. Um, and that became the inspiration to see if we could go solve it without depending on change in policy. The outcome was Unshackled Ventures, where uh, we could take care of founders who are immigrants to the country, and they can focus their time on building the company while we take care of nuances that are unique to immigrant founders. And your thesis, I, I love and I love that idea because most of our listeners, you know, have heard how hard it is to start a business. And I'd say most people have heard how hard it is to, you know, come into this country, right? So you take those two things together and there is a massive, massive issue at play, not just like cultural pieces or, you know, what it's like to be, you know, moving to a new place, but so many business specific challenges. But this isn't, you know, like a charity. You're not doing this out of the goodness of your heart. You believe that immigrant founders have something. We've seen tons of immigrant founders be insanely successful. But what is it about immigrant founders that you found is particularly interesting? Look, starting and building businesses is a different sport altogether, right? So entrepreneurship, um, which comes at different scales, but our entrepreneurship that we talk about is the high scale, high risk, high growth, high scale type of companies Building these companies have adversities at every corner. Every few months, you're running the risk of running out of money. Most people doubt what you're doing. Most people think it's insanity what you're doing. So getting people to believe in your vision, getting people to work for you, getting people to invest in you, and then executing at that scale when the business actually starts scaling, it's not for everybody. So you're looking for people who have 
extraordinary capabilities to to do this. And one of the unique aspects of that is people who are not scared of adversity, in fact, perform really, really well in the face of adversity. Immigrants have this tendency of a very strong adversity muscle. I'm not saying that every immigrant is born to be an entrepreneur, and I'm not saying that if you're not an immigrant, you don't have adversity muscle. What I'm saying is in the spectrum of people who would build phenomenal companies, you're looking for people who have a slight advantage and you're trying to back them for that slight advantage. So when we look at people from all over the world who are invited to the United States through our school system or the corporate system, they've been filtered or selected out of billions of people outside the U.S., right? So there's a very high level of filtration that's already happening, which sets a very high baseline. In terms of technical capabilities, their own willingness to raise their hand that I want to be in the United States. They're coming here with a purpose. They are also going through a journey that gives them that grit, that adversity muscle. We think that adds that slight advantage to the immigrant entrepreneurs, which is why if you look at the history of some of the best companies, some of the fastest growing companies that have been built, those have been built with immigrant founders. So in a very interesting way, the, the way we kind of decipher that from an investor's perspective is if I'm looking for the best kind of entrepreneur to solve a problem, what are the ingredients that I'm looking for? I'm looking for a non-obvious way to approach that problem. Immigrants come from a different cultural background. They have a different way of thinking. That perspective gives them potentially a new way of looking at that problem. I'm looking at people who can keep at that and fight through any adversity that comes their way. And I'm looking at people who can be leaders in their field. And and the kind of founders that we're working with, we're backing, represent all of that. I love that you say that it's about people who have been invited to the country and vetted by some other source. So, you know, a lot of times you're talking about, you know, like my buddy's dad came from Norway, went through University of Washington, you know, got a job in an engineering firm, you're talking about multiple different people placed bets on this guy to be successful. And then at some point, you know, he's here on a visa, he needs to figure out what his future holds. And, you know, what is the next step there? You know, we have listeners in I think 129 countries, you know, if you're one of our listeners who are outside of the US, I'm sure you're nodding along at some of the challenges if you have tried to make that journey. When you're talking about, you know, 7 billion people on the earth, the vetting criteria just to get here is so rigid that if your company or if your firm can help alleviate some of the kind of additional red tape challenges, boy, that's an advantageous selling point to companies that you want to invest in. Yeah. And I I don't even think that we're actually enabling them to do something they can't do themselves. Of course. Every entrepreneur we're backing will build this company with or without us. What we're really doing is accelerating the speed at which they can build this company because in the process of building a company, the biggest limited commodity is the founder's time. And as the company grows, the entire team's time. That founder time, if it is being spent on dealing with things that are non-core to building the business, you will now have less time available to the core things of building the business. And that's what we're trying to take off the founder's shoulder. There's a lot of things that, you know, for example, when we were building our company and we raised money from top tier VCs, the biggest value we got from them was not capital. Their capital was just as valuable as somebody else's capital. We got a lot of operating resources from them, which amplified our time. 
And that's when, when we thought of starting in Shackle Ventures, that's what we modeled ourselves against. What are we going to do to amplify the time of our founders so that they can succeed faster? When we talked to Mark Craney, who is in studio, who, you know, built the executive briefing program at Injuries and Horowitz, yep. it was the same sort of thing. You know, we we're talking to him and he's like, wouldn't it be great if we could leverage our network to get our founders in front of people who would buy their product? And then, you know, seven years later, they had this amazing briefing program. We saw it firsthand when I was at No. They opened the doors to various universities for us, accelerated the process of us getting in front of the right decision makers. Yeah, and I think that the way that you have approached this is so brilliant because you're trying to figure out a way to reduce friction on something that is like in that person's mind 24 seven, you know, not to make a, you know, reductive, you know, argument here, but imagine if you had, you know, to uh, apply to undergrad school, how well you were building your business, right? It's like that complete, we've all, you're not, not all of us, but many of us have been through like kind of that process. It's a challenge. Imagine all of the things that happen in your everyday life that happen when you're trying to build a business, those things are exponentially more frustrating. So to be able to just provide that guidance and that help goes a long way. Did you feel like you and, and your business partner who love to hear how you both met, did you feel like you had a specific advantage because you've kind of had been there before? We didn't think of it as an advantage. We just think of when you are in the middle of executing something, you don't really think of putting a label on, do I have an advantage with this or not? But for context, my partner was born here in Silicon Valley. He grew in Silicon Valley in the middle of everything that was happening, saw all these great companies been, being built right around him. He was born to immigrant parents who came here in the 70s. Their immigration journey was very different from my immigration journey when I came here in 2005. We both met at no, which was an education software company, education technology company, ultimately acquired by Intel, uh, which is where Andreessen Horowitz helped us quite a bit. And he and I, he worked in marketing. I worked in strategy and finance. We had a great working relationship there. When I left to start my first company, a few months later, he left and he started a company with a visa holder as well. So he went through that experience of starting a company as an immigrant, as an American co-founder of an immigrant. And so I think our passions aligned quite a bit in that when I first told him about, you know, look, I have this framework where I think I can solve this. He immediately jumped on it because now he had acquired the taste of that immigrant journey. The biggest part of it, though, was we had heard of all the immigrant success before us, right? A lot of great companies have been built by immigrants. You have also read and heard of all, all the people complaining about the policies or the implementation of policies and whatever not. For Manan and I, it was simply, is there anything in our control and power that we can do on the ground today to change the equation? And it was the harder thing to do because it's taken us five years to, to get to this point where we have now backed 38 companies and um, about 100 uh, immigration filings. But in that process, we also learned that this is not just about immigration. There are slight nuances. I think you, you, you started referring to, to those. When you come here as an international student and you graduate, certain things that we could take for granted that may not be a given for them, just having access to a credit card, right? Uh, walking into a car rental station and renting a car. Well, you don't have a U.S. driver's license yet. 
and you don't have a credit card. So walking out with that rental card is not as easy as somebody else. These are real life instances where there are cultural nuances that you just have to get attuned to. And I think that's where we have a unique advantage because we have lived that journey ourselves, me as an immigrant and Manan as a, as a U.S. citizen who started a company with an immigrant, we understand that it's, it's not just about immigration, it's the whole package. A big component of what we get to do with our portfolio companies is work on access. Building a startup, you and I were just talking about this before, access is half the problem. Why is Silicon Valley or being in Silicon Valley so much more powerful? It's because access is much easier and faster here. So an area where we become a great resource for our portfolio founders is opening doors to customers, talent, investors. There's a whole community behind us that is actively working every day to support these portfolio founders. That is the reason these businesses have moved as fast as they've moved. It's not just Manan and I doing something. It's a community of 600 people, including our LPs. My brother is, is from New Zealand. But one of the things whenever we travel together, so it's like, hey, we got to add an extra hour at the airport, right? It's like those, all those little yeah. things of like, hey, we're coming back into the US. Need to make sure, you know, because we know he's going to get stopped. Those add up in a huge way when you're building a business, when every single one of those hours matters, when the clock is ticking. Hey, we have nine months left of runway. If you're burning hours every single time you get on a plane because you have to spend extra time in, you know, at the airport, that's not a good situation to be in. And you know where those hours come from. They get deducted from your sleep. They get deducted from your social slash personal time. It's going back to that drive. There's so much drive in the entrepreneurs that, you know, they are just not going to let anything slow them down. So that extra hour at the airport or the limitations on travel, which is if you have a customer that you need to go visit in Germany, you have to first go apply for a visa to Germany. If you're a U.S. citizen, you don't need a visa to go to Germany. But if you're from China or India or most other countries, you need a visa. So you have to work your stuff out. But as an immigrant, I don't think of that as a burden or, oh my God, now I got to do that too. It's simply a way of life. And that perspective changes everything. When, when the perspective is, I need to go meet a customer in Germany because I need to close that deal. All I care about is that's the bullseye target. So whatever I need to do to get to that point and close that customer, I'm going to do. Well, and I think that some of those things, like you said, it's like you just would have no idea about. I've never had that scenario happen. There's no way I could know that like those additional things. One of those things is that when you were working for a company and you're there on a visa, if you want to leave that company right. to start your own company, this now becomes a potentially enormous problem, which is something that, again, you have to address. Can you share a little bit about kind of like your personal experience with that? Yeah, I got uh, 24 immigration attorneys tell me, don't leave your company to start your company because you're going to have to leave the country. This was in 2012. I'm still here. And I've started companies uh, while on those visas. So I think the bigger problem than the immigration policy is the misinformation about immigration that's out yeah. there. And there's a reason behind that. Most of the immigration attorney's work comes from employees working at big employers. That's the volume of the work. Because that's the volume of the work, they don't understand the nuances of startups. You know, a lot of them run out of business. And so for an attorney to invest all that time and effort in building a business around startups the payoff may not look to be that great. Why did these two dozen attorneys tell me that? And I hear these from founders 
day in, day out. Every time I'm on a university trip, the biggest question is we spoke with our international student center or we spoke with immigration attorneys and they tell us we cannot start a business. So number one problem is this misinformation because the law does not start stop you from starting a business. The law does not stop you from owning shares in the company. The law describes rules under which you need to operate when you're on a visa, which is okay. As an immigrant, when I'm coming to the U.S., I know I'm going into a new land and I need to know the rules of engagement under which I'm going there. If I understand those rules of engagement, I can now figure out what I can do, what I cannot do, and for what I can do, how should I go about doing it? That's called a playbook. So if immigration attorneys had taken the, or international centers at schools, had taken the effort to really understand this playbook and answer questions in detail versus just blanket, you can't start a company because you're on H-1B, that's not a good answer. So I, I think we, we need to put in an effort. And so we do our part in kind of when we are at these schools, really helping students understand, here's what you can do on your F-1 visa. Here's what you can do when you're on OPT. When you get your H-1 or when you get your E-3 or whatever, pick a letter, pick a number combination visa, there are things that you can do and there are things that you cannot do. And then let's help structure it in a way that you can do what you want to do, right? What's the ultimate goal? So in my case, I wasn't happy with the answer that I can't start a company that I want to start. So I kept researching. I kept looking for a way to be able to do that. And I eventually found it. When I found it, I also found an attorney who would help me execute that. And that started a relationship, which is now that attorney's part of Unshackled. We're the only VC firm that has an immigration attorney as a partner um, who also does all of our immigration work for our portfolio companies. There's a reason we have 100% success rate on our immigration filings, because we're very diligent about let's understand the rules of engagement and then execute according to that. The troubling part of that, though, is it took a lot of my time away from building the business that I should have been building, right? And that's what we're trying to avoid here. The founder's time is much better spent extracting that protein from the plant that they're trying to do or or figuring out that, that AI algorithm that they're trying to build or whatever big problem they're trying to solve. The, the utility on figuring out immigration for us is very high because we can repeat apply it on founders as we invest in other portfolio companies. For an individual founder, the utility is pretty minimal. They solve their problem and then they're focusing on building their business. So we're very fortunate that we now have this playbook, which we've we've applied across 11 different categories of visas on founders from 19 different countries. We're not going to boil the ocean. We're, we're not solving it for everybody. But for the exceptional founders who we back, we can now take away a lot of that pain point. You must have been the kid when you grew up that never took no for an answer. I guess that's right. When you grew up in a scarcity economy, you don't take no for an answer. India is a scarcity economy. You know, you're growing up with a billion people. You got to compete. Where'd you grow up? New Delhi. So what was it like when you were first coming here? So before I came here, I also had about three years. I worked with a company called ABB, which is mostly, uh, it's, it's heavy engineering company. Most of its businesses in Europe and Asia. And so I traveled throughout Asia and Europe. I had a chance to experience a few other cultures before I came to the U.S. And I was very fortunate that I got to experience U.S. the way I did uh, with Deloitte. 
because after spending the first few weeks here, the biggest cultural difference was growing up in India was you're always competing. You got to earn your kill, right? Is because just there's so many people versus here. It was it's a culture of abundance. You have more resources for less people. And that shifts your priorities, that shifts your mindset from when you are growing up in India, you may still be trying to solve the basic necessity type problems versus now here, we're trying to solve the next level problems. And it's important because this culture now allows you to take the risks and focus attention on things that are going to create a big shift for humanity as a whole. I know it's easy to say, oh, we're sol- solving elitist problems or first world problems. But if you really think about the the big solutions that come about and the implementation, the big changes from internet, the big changes from mobile or an application like Facebook, they've WhatsApp, they've had massive impact on underdeveloped countries because they've opened up resources or access to people who traditional means would not have opened up those resources. So why could this not get discovered in a country like India or China? Because we're still too busy solving the necessity level problems. And so to me, that was the biggest cultural shift is now I have the capacity because I don't have to spend my energy on the micro issues. Mm -hmm. I now have the capacity to think about bigger things to solve. Do you think that that is part of the thing that you look for in founders is that same type of mindset? I think it comes organically and naturally because by definition, you know, we're investing in venture backable companies. Venture backable companies have to be capable of achieving a certain scale. And so if you're solving a very niche or utility type problem, it's going to be really hard to scale that service. If you're solving a problem that is a big problem for either a small segment of people or it's a problem for a very large segment of people, uh, even if it's a lesser of a problem, those kind of businesses naturally are uh, more attractive to venture capital. And so Mm -hmm. that's why we see more of that. Now, that's not to say that we don't come across service businesses or businesses that are niche, and we guide those founders towards better sources of financing versus VC. VC is not a great source of financing if you're going to be a company that hits the ceiling quickly and then become profitable at that point because we see permanent equity you're not going to be able to pay it off when you want to so yeah i know we see some of that but mostly it's by natural selection it's the scalable type businesses for those founders that you've backed you know you talked about a ton of different companies what are some of the challenges that they have outside of just dealing with kind of the, the natural process of, of immigration It's been a learning process for us as well, because we really didn't know what else to expect. Right. And so as we've grown and as our portfolio has grown, and I think the critical point is somewhere between 25 and 30 portfolio companies is when you really start seeing clusters of success stories, clusters of challenges. And so what we're discovering is there are nuances that you get exposed to when you work with a certain category of entrepreneurs in this case we are immune to accents that's funny i can understand all accents that's like you really can funny. throw anything at me and i'll understand it i'm pretty good i mean i know the, you in are. the podcasting world <laughs> i feel like you have to be but i was also in the army and I'm that's right so so you were exposed to different cultures different accents different languages 
which opened up your perspective to it's okay if somebody speaks different from me. But as we, for example, work with all these founders with, you know, different kinds of accents, different personalities, because it's not just accents, but the personality in which people talk, right? 40% of our portfolio founders are females and female founders may talk with a different level of, I don't want to say confidence, but just brouhaha, right? More grounded. Most of our, even even male founders in our portfolio mostly are grounded. We have to coach them to be, to hype things up a little bit. We learned that one part of an area of development was because they were conscious of their accents and somewhere directly or indirectly, some of them had been told that they have an accent. Yep. They were not as confident when they were with, with strangers or when they were talking to a large group of people. And so we, we went out and found acting and, and speaking coaches who didn't actually solve the accent because that's just natural who the person is and the accent is going to get solved on its own. But they solved how you approach the situation. They solved how you can be comfortable in the way you talk and be confident in what you're presenting. So those are nuances that you only learn when you work with your customer, right? And so we pay attention to that. There are, I mentioned the credit card stuff. So there are times when we're backing a founder and they're like, I can't get a lease. What do I do? And we figure out a way for them to be able to to get a lease for a place to stay. It's not because they don't have the means. It's just because they are just graduating. They don't have their SSN yet, or they didn't have a credit card. Their credit history hasn't started yet. It, it's some nuance. Oh, yeah. No, and I, and I meant it more from like, it's just such a competitive market for real estate. Yeah. So it's like, <laughs> if, you, if you're not showing up to the place that you want to rent with the money already ready to wire, you might lose the place. But the other thing I wanted to say on that too, is that it's not just you. This is the other, I would say, misconception is take, for example, there's a like HR software. Good luck trying to hire outside of the US doesn't allow for it. So if you're a startup founder and you would like to hire immigrants, you can't even do it in your software. So how are you going to do that? And then it's more time, effort, and energy. So it's it's another piece of like being empathetic of like knowing what your employees are going through. That is another huge challenge. Exposure solves everything. And so, you know, the, the more exposure you have, which is why I think we've become so specialized at this and we want to stay specialized at Immigrant Founders is we're building our playbook on the nuances of what they will face now, what they will face down the road. The renting problem is not just here. I talk to startups in the Midwest and it's a systemic thing. Our portfolio companies are hiring throughout the country. They're not hiring just in Silicon Valley. For them to hire somewhere else, again, it's if they're hiring other immigrants, certain nuances get figured out because we're involved. Um, I get asked quite frequently by um, a lot of the VCs in my network, they've invested in a company that's looking to hire an immigrant or one of the founders suddenly found out something wrong with their with their status. It is a thing that just goes on whatever. But the challenge is not let's not do this or let's whine about it. The solution is not to avoid it or whine about it. The solution is to understand the specifics of the situation and then take steps to solve it. For a class of entrepreneurs who've historically performed phenomenally well, it's well worth the investment, right? We're on the path to become the destination fund for immigrant founders. I think that's a phenomenal position to be at. Yeah, especially such success in, in a short amount of time. You just recently announced 
fun too, mm-hmm. right? So tell me a little bit about the process and what you're excited about kind of going forward. We're doing what we were doing before. We can just do more of that now. So I get to say your next rounds on me more often. <laughs> Our fund one was a proof of concept fund. We started with an idea. Both Manan and I don't have any background in VC. We were customers of VC. We now serve those customers, right? We serve entrepreneurs and we serve LPs. So fund one was about learning the ropes. And that's why we raised our fund one from 80 people who had been either micro VCs or angel investors for a long time. Fund two was about taking that and scaling it and starting to own the pipeline. You know, we we just did this analysis about six months ago for our annual general meeting and this re- recently refreshed it. We're pretty excited about where we are, which is ahead of the curve where we thought we would be. We attract a lot of immigrants. Immigrants have a tendency to start businesses. And when they are looking to start a business, they look for someone like us. So we're in a very fortunate space where we've built enough relationships that when an immigrant thinks of starting a company, they can find someone who guides them to us. That doesn't mean our work is done. So in terms of where we go from here is we, we're doubling down on these relationships. I mentioned the trips to the Midwest because there's a lot of universities and organizations, enterprises that hire immigrants in those mm-hmm. communities. And we're looking to build relationships there so that we can fund those entrepreneurs wherever they want to build their company, right? So that's one aspect of it. From an investing philosophy standpoint, we, we still like to invest close to the formation stage. We're more likely to invest pre-product and pre-revenue than we are to invest post-revenue. We like to really look for that founder potential. So we're truly investing purely in people. It's important to understand that, um, or important clarification, at least one of the founders is non-US born, is the qualifying criteria. Really looking for that exceptional founder quality to back these founders. And besides that, you can be in any domain. We've done software, hardware, life sciences, biotech, space tech, uh, materials. And we'll keep looking at everything that's venture scalable to that effect. We now have 38 portfolio companies. So we're starting to see a lot of clusters within the community, which become very valuable resources for, for portfolio companies. And now you have these scalable effects. So we've by investing in the first two space tech companies, we've built a lot of relationships in that domain. And so the next space tech company we invest in will benefit from that. We've invested heavily in the food tech all the way from farming to distribution. So the next food tech company we invest in, the next healthcare company we invest in, we have a lot of these resources that are compounded in the community. We'll do a lot more of that. And then we have a few new initiatives that are coming up because, as I said, the goal is to be able to be in a position where when an entrepreneur thinks about starting a company, we're accessible and we're taking steps to be there. What do your LPs look for? Yeah, our LPs believe investing in immigrants is great business. That's pretty much it. Our our LPs believe that immigrants will create the most successful venture-backed companies, and that's why they believe in us. They also believe that we are in a position to attract the best immigrant founders because of the value we offer, right? And so we're not a social impact fund. We're not measuring our success in terms of how many immigrants have we helped. We're measuring our success by how many jobs have our portfolio companies created. Over time, we are going to be measured by, in terms of the LPs, by what multiple of dollars do we return, right? That's the ultimate measure of success for any VC. And so overall, our success metric is number of jobs created because companies that create jobs 
end up being very successful. In other words, as they are being successful, they create more jobs. There's a very good lineage and that ultimately kind of aligns with the traditional American values of entrepreneurship, job creation, value creation, right? They're all linked. I think that, you know, from the moment we met, you were so driven by that purpose and by the idea of job creation and kind of that envelope math of like, if we're doing this, all of the good things, you know, flow from this. Right. Um, and we, we had this conversation, you know, a few years ago about where I was saying the same thing about military veterans, yeah. where it's like, if you just say, I have a belief that certain types of founders will outperform the market. Has anyone ever tested this? Has anyone? I was like, yeah, the proof is in all the immigrant founded companies or veteran founded companies or whatever it is. Not to say that, like, if you don't have those backgrounds, does whatever it's there's a certain of characteristics right regardless of whatever it is in your background that make you a successful founder it might be that you're an immigrant it might be that you're a veteran it might be you had an amazing home life and you were, were able to see the world in a new way or travel or whatever it is that your parents gave you some you know advantage or, or whatever it is it doesn't really matter what matters is your attitude and approach and how you want to solve problems and be an expert and you know that's another thing that when we first met you always talked about and you, you brought it up earlier about finding people that are experts, that are seeking to be experts in what they do. And the best immigrant founders do this, the best veteran founders, the best whatever, the best founders just do this. Exactly right. It is a founder trait to see greatness around them, which is really why if you look at the VC ecosystem today, it doesn't look much like what it used to look 15 years ago, 10 years ago. Why has it changed? Is because founders are seeking greatness in their VC partners. They're not just seeking capital, right? That age is gone. The great founders expect their VCs to be equally great. Now, I will say our job is much simpler than a founder's job, right? Except for me as an individual, our mm -hmm. job is to take money from LPs and sell it to founders in return for equity in their company. Great founders always have a lot of choices on who they take capital from. What I have to think about is why would a great founder accept my dollars over anybody else's dollars? People who've been around for longer, people who may have better brand than we do. And so for us, it kind of ultimately percolates down to we have to match their greatness with our greatness on what we do. It's the only way to build this company, to build Unshackled. Fortunately for us, it's natural. And fortunately, our LPs believe that we are not trying to create an unnatural segment of entrepreneurs to just say, just for the sake of a thesis, you know, here's a yeah. unique vertical that we're going to go into. They truly believe that there's value to be added in the form of founders' time being given back to them in the form of access. Access is bigger than immigration. We cannot build a generational firm just by doing immigration work. Ultimately, we're going to be known for the destination fund for immigrant founders for the access we can create for them. And that is where most of our focus has been. And now it's getting even more amplified because communities have compounding effects. The more people that we add, the stronger the engagement gets within community. And so what we started with Fund 1 and our LPs, and then their friends now with Fund 2 and the LPs and their friends and the community of 260 co-investors, it's really becoming something. To be completely honest, that is what we're most proud of. One of the things that I've noticed from afar is that 
you're just a go-to source, both you and Monin are go-to sources for people. And I just think that that is like the metric of, you know, if you're to look at anecdotal metrics that show that you're going to be around a long time, who do founders go to first with information to ask questions, to do these sort of things. It clearly shows that you're being helpful. That's how you fight and win in the long term against why they should choose you over other VCs. So thank you. No, it's been awesome to be like a tiny little part of fly on the wall and seeing how cool what you're building is and seeing the impact. So thanks for stopping by. This is great. Anything else? Anything to plug? Anything you got going on? If you're an immigrant founder, come find us. Thanks so much for coming on. Check out Unshackled Ventures and we'll see you soon. Then. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera, who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.